0: Hi, everybody. I'm Matt. And I'm Steve. And this is Marvel Reread Club.
1: Right. So welcome back, everybody. We are continuing with our recap of issues that Marvel published with a cover date of October 1965. They actually came out probably in July. The first half of this month, the issues that we covered in the previous episode were pretty uniformly good. I mean, Daredevil wasn't great. Oh, I'm sorry. Daredevil. Yes. Daredevil had good Wollywood art. Yeah, I guess you're right. So (laughs) it was generally a good half of the month. This second half will generally not be as good, but we start strong here with Strange Tales.
0: Yes, both have some Strange Tales. They're just killing it these days. This is, you know. I don't know. I it would be a lot to say Marvel's best book, but this may be Marvel's best book. Until Sinat takes over Fantastic Four next issue. I don't know. But Spider Man is so good. <laughs> it's it's hard to say.
1: Yeah. This one isn't a slacker. Let's put it that way. No. The story is called The Prize Is Dot dot, dot Earth. So the
0: cover is By John Severin, it is a big, beautiful cover of S.H.I.E.L.D. with just a tiny little strip of Doctor Strange on the bottom.
1: On the splash page inside, it's a wonderful splash page of the communication center in S.H.I.E.L.D. And you see this long line of operators who have headsets on and are dealing with controls and TV screens and stuff like that. On one of those TV screens is the credits for this issue. Story Stan Lee, layouts J. Kirby, art J. Severin, lettering Art Simac. We see this big jumbotron thing, like these days you would think of as just basically the thing hanging over a basketball arena, you know, with yes. the graphics and the stuff up there. But it's basically one of those with Fury's head on all four sides. One thing I really
0: love about this first page, and it was something I should have mentioned last episode when we talked about Daredevil, because uh, Wallywood did it in Daredevil too. One of my huge pet peeves in comics always is when they show someone's face on a screen, and we're watching that screen from the side. Often the artist will just draw that person's face from the side. Right. But in fact, it would not be like that. Well, this is beautiful here, the way the way Kirby and Severin do this, because you can see on one side of the cube, Nick Fury is looking basically at us, and he looks like someone drawn who we're looking at. And then we see the same image being projected on another side of the cube, and it is as if he has actually done this in Photoshop. It looks like he is in no way drawing just one side of his face when we're yeah. looking at his face on the other side of the cube. It's beautifully done. And what did this last issue with the organizer's face on a screen that, that we were looking at at an angle too in Daredevil and I forgot to give him credit for that here, but I'll go ahead and give credit here to Kirby and Severin who do a beautiful job with it.
1: So we see Nick Fury in a captured Hydra flying saucer type contraption that S.H.I.E.L.D. has gotten for study. He then is escorted out of there by a bunch of MPs and uh, this is because Hydra has put a price of $1 million on Nick Fury's head. Nick is taken to the weapons design department. So now we get one of those bond visiting Q <laughs> type situations here, yes, and, and we get to see all his different gadgets. They're giving Fury a fedora. That has essentially allows him to see right out the back of his head. It looks almost like a fiber optic kind of thing <laughs> to be able to see out the back. Uh, he then has a tie that can act as a radio transceiver. It also is self destructs so you pull this one thread and then it just burns itself up. Uh, and at one point, Nick says something about, where do you get these ideas from? Dick Tracy? I'm coming back to that in a minute. Q gives Fury the actual suit to put on, and he tries it on. He's like, oh, this seems a little heavier than normal suit, but, you know, oh, whatever. Puts it on and then goes into the dressing room, and the mirrors slide up, and men come out with machine guns and start just machine gunning nick but this is not some kind of a trap this is just a demonstration that this is a steel mesh suit that he's wearing essentially kind of like high-tech chainmail. and remember i said where do you get these ideas from dick tracy last panel on page four is it just me or is severin trying his best to make nick fury look like dick tracy there
0: That's funny. Uh, It does look like that. I should point out that in the movie Three Days of the Condor, which came out a few years later, I don't know if the book had come out at this point, we begin with a CIA agent played by... Robert Redford, and one of his jobs is to read things that to steal ideas for the CIA from. And at the beginning of that movie, he steals an idea from Dick Tracy to use for a CIA gadget. <laughs> That's actually his job, is to read old Dick Tracy strips and steal ideas for the CIA. And he reads a strip uh, with an ice bullet, that then the bullet melts, and uh, he recommends it to his boss. I thought
1: Three Days of the Condor was Warren Beatty. Are they both in it?
0: No, nope. you thing of parallax view is more Three It is the Converse ah, Robert okay. Redford.
1: So then, as Stan says, let us change our scene as we visit a small town in the Balkans. There's a guy who is defected from Hydra and is trying to get some kind of a microfilm to shield, but then Hydra's goons attack and kill him. There's a great panel of a flower vendor whose tray of flowers is just hiding some kind of a uh, machine gun underneath there. The defecting Hydra agent is killed, but in his last act, he's able to throw the film to a SHIELD agent who is there to receive it from him. Hydra helicopters are approaching the train that the microfilm is now on in the hands of a SHIELD agent. They, of course, have... Big yellow H's for Hydra <laughs> on all of their helicopters because they're a secret terrorist organization. So
0: we just saw they had a brilliant gun hidden inside a flower seller's tray to engage in secret spy degree, And then they're like, nope, forget it. We're going to attack with giant helicopters with our first mission." on. And of course, they land on top of the train and are walking along the top of the train. And you know that I always love it when people walk along the top of trains in anything. And have you seen the new Mission Impossible yet? I have not. Well, who boy does it have action on top of trains? I was a happy man.
1: Have you seen the latest Indiana Jones movie yet?
0: I have. Yes. Also has action on top of trains. Yes. So yes. I oh. uh, I saw both those movies within like five days of each other. And so I've been living the dream of watching action on top <laughs> of trains.
1: Yes. So lots of train action here. Hydra is going through the train trying to find the agent who has the film. The agent is able to lean out the side of the train and pass off the film to some other shield agents who are driving a sports car and then the uh, agent who just handed off the film turns around to the hydra agents who just came in and he points a gun at them says come in gentlemen i've been exposed Expecting you. And he's got like all these machine guns pointed at him. You know, they say, thus we take our leave of another unsung agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. as the deadly chase continues. So, you know, this guy clearly knows he's about to die and just is like, you know, I'm just going to take some Hydra goons with me. And it later is confirmed in the dialogue that this guy did die.
0: When the S.H.I.E.L.D. agents drive by to get the thing from him, luckily they've got a huge butterfly net for him to toss the thing into. (laughs) Like, uh, it's I guess Severin didn't think it would be realistic for him to just be able to toss it to them and have them catch it. So he gave them a uh, pool cleaning net to uh, get it from him.
1: They realize they're now being followed, the folks in the sports car who just took the film, and so they activate sub mode so their car can turn into a submarine. So then it drives down into the sea.
0: James Bond would do the same thing in The Spy Let Me in 1977. So this is, S.H.I.E.L.D. is ahead of Bond by quite a bit in terms of driving a car into the sea and having it turn into a submarine.
1: Didn't Bond also have that in um, For Your Eyes Only? No. No? Nope. Okay, never mind me.
0: This is two times you've tried to dispute me on spy movies. Shall we make it three? <laughs>
1: No, I I will leave it alone. So their car turns into a sub for them to escape, but Hydra has undersea forces as well. They refer to the HUAF, a Hydra Undersea Assault Force. They are coming up on the car. They are clearly about to disable and capture the car that has the film in it. And so the two agents who are in there self-destruct, sacrificing their own lives. And that's clear that they know exactly what they're doing. One of the guys says to the other, it's been nice knowing you, Joe. I'm going to press the destruct button. And then the next scene we see is Dum Dum Dugan and Gabe with some other agent uh, listening on the headphones as they hear the thing blow up. And they're like, I knew those two guys. They were the greatest. Dum Dum saying they they did it. Yeah, uh, things have not been going well. And it, it is interesting just how much actual sacrifice and death we're getting in the in these stories more than anywhere else.
0: Now we know what really happened to the Ocean Gate Titan sub. It was really <laughs> attacked by the HUAF and had to heroically detonate itself. Yes. I believe this is the first time we've seen that Dum Dum Dugan and Cape Jones survived the war and are now members of S.H.I.E.L.D. They briefly were coloring... African-Americans with Brown, but now they have gone way back to the gray and Gabe looks truly bizarre with brown
1: hair, but gray skin. And like medium brown hair. It's not even like dark brown hair. (laughs) It's kind of sort of a hazelnut kind of color. (laughs) Yeah, it just looks really weird. It turns out that the uh, microfilm they were trying to get their hands on were plans for something called the Betatron bomb, because Hydra is going to launch this thing into orbit and be able to use it to hold the entire Earth hostage. We then go to a boardroom of the Imperial Industry International, very important men making very important decisions. Once the board meeting breaks up, the chairman of the board then heads into a secret passageway that leads directly from the boardroom down to the Hydra headquarters which seems a little unwise to me. I'm not quite sure how that works. It seems like there would be a little bit more separation. So this is really interesting to have Hydra be led
0: by an American industrialist and to not have it be a Soviet front organization or even, you know, a specter-like terrorist organization to have this be someone who is has its origin in the roots of American power. This is similar to what was going on on Man Uncle. Um, this is similar to Thrush. It's a huge leap in Stan's politics from what he would have done a couple of years ago in terms of not having the commies be running the whole thing and reflects a broader shift in spy stories. Certainly in the James Bond books, he was fighting Smirsh, which was very much a Soviet organization. And then it was only in the later books he fought Spectre a few times. They went ahead and rewrote most of the Bond stories from Smirsh to Spectre when they turned them into movies. Certainly, if you look at From Much With Love, that was you know very much about Smirsh, and then they changed it into Spectre. And you get this move away from, let's stop doing these stories that needlessly antagonize the Soviets who were in this delicate dance with and let's start demonizing more faceless organizations instead. But I find this fascinating that Hydra is run by an American businessman.
1: Yeah, and this is only the first of, like, what, at least three different secret societies that are going to be showing up in the next year or so here. All are kind of similar. I mean, Hydra is the one that clearly has more legs in the Marvel Universe. But, yeah, it's like one of the other ones that comes up seems like it's a white supremacist organization, as far as I can tell. And, you know, so, yeah, it's interesting where they are are, uh, where they're moving with this stuff. So Supreme Hydra then goes back to his headquarters. Uh, someone comes in and says, Master, Special Agent G requested an audience with you, but I said you were busy. That's what, you fool. Agent G is always to be admitted. So this is his daughter, who I believe we met in the previous issue. And I believe we learned in the last issue she was his daughter. Yes? I think so. Uh, maybe. She is just saying, Dad, why are you doing this? Can you stop trying to take over the world? And he's like, how dare you talk to me that way? Other people would be killed for this. Don't you know I'm doing this all for you? She's like, I don't want that. I just want you to be a dad. Which is exactly the storyline going on when we had the Gideon story in Fantastic Four that, again, he was trying to essentially take over the world to be able to give it to his son, but all his son wanted was a father.
0: This goes all the way back to the Doctor Strange story an Iron Man before Doctor Strange existed, and Iron Man one called Doctor Strange had a similar sort of dynamic in it going on. Right. Stanley likes this dynamic a lot. Of course, the way you were just quoting it reminded me a lot of Dr. Evil and Scott Evil on the Jerry Springer show. And <laughs> uh <laughs> Austin Powers means gold member.
1: That was my least favorite of the three uh, Austin Powers movies. So I don't remember that one as much. <laughs> I like that movie a lot. In the end, the Betatron bomb is successfully launched up into space. And this is another cliffhanger. So we will find out what happens next issue. Any more thoughts about that before I talk about Doctor Strange, Master of the Mystic Arts?
0: Yeah, I love the sequence where he visits the tailor and is given all the stuff. You know, Gadget Assembly or Jack Kirby, whoever you want to give credit for the potting, was a big fan of the spy stories at the time and knew how important the gadget scene was. And this is a great gadget scene. I did, by the way, look up. This is the first time we have seen modern-day Temtem Dugan and Gabe Jones and find out that they survived the war and that they are now working for S.H.I.E.L.D. You know, this book will bleed supporting characters a lot and they will eventually be written out of the book. And Fury will be the only consistent character in any of this. Stranko will eventually write them out. But I'm glad to have them here for now. And I, whenever I read these books to my son... I always do Dum Dum's voice with a high Irish voice like the cop in the Batman TV show.
1: I always enjoy reading that to my son. OK, just when you were talking at James Bond earlier, did Smirch ever get even mentioned in any of the James Bond movies? I don't think no, they not did. at all.
0: You know, Smirch was a real organization and right. Fleming was attributing these like almost godlike powers to it that it didn't really have in real life. And, you know, famously... At one point, John F. Kennedy was asked, what are you reading, sir? And people wanted him to say, you know, like, oh, I'm reading the works of the Mahatma Gandhi or something. And instead he said, I'm reading From Much With Love by Ian Fleming. And this was, on the one hand, like the Fleming people were like, oh, this is awesome, huge promotion from the president. But people were like, but that book is a crazy far-right conspiracy theory. And uh, <laughs> there was a minor international incident caused by Kennedy's honest reporting of what he was reading.
1: Interesting. Yeah, but I think Smirsh was actually disbanded as a department in the KGB, and it was at that point that the books switched over to the imaginary group Spectre because Smirsh was now gone, and that was his main thing. That was my understanding, yeah.
0: at least. I can't go on enough about how wonderful Severin's art is in this issue. I mean, obviously, it's throwing a lot on the spy shows of the era, and this feels like a really well-done spy TV show, the whole sequence in which... The turncoat agent throws the tape to the spy on the train and then the spy on the train gets it to the spies in the car and then the spies in the car turn into a submarine and get away is like the very best spy movies or spy TV shows of the era of which I am an aficionado. And Severin is just drawing the hell out of this book. It is just absolutely
1: gorgeous. Let's move on to Doctor Strange, Master of the Mystic Arts. When Meet the Mystic Minds. Written and edited with amazing acumen by Stan Lee. Plotted and drawn with artistic aplomb by Steve Ditko. Lettered and bordered with ruler and pen by Artie Simak. So Artie Simak getting a little bit of respect this time. That's nice. So we have been in the middle of this long, epic many issue story here and we're finally going to get some movement on this. I know you've been complaining a little bit that we really haven't been making much progress despite some nice stories along the way. Well, at this point, Dr. Strange just decides, I can't get the answer anywhere else about eternity. I have to probe the mind of the Ancient One. And the disciple who is protecting the Ancient One while he is laying in his coma is like, no, 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 please, you can't do this. It's too dangerous. But Strange basically pulls rank on him and is like, I can make this decision. And the guy's like, yeah, you can. All right, I will leave you now. And it's interesting, the servant there at one point as he's leaving Dr. Strange with the Ancient One says, salam, man of mystery which it's like, uh, Salam is Arabic. <laughs> yeah. uh, I don't get the feeling that this guy is Muslim, but, you know, I'm sure that Stanley just was using terms of Oriental mystery as far as he was concerned here. And uh, yeah, which one it was didn't make a much difference to him. I would assume. So, Strange ends up bathing the Ancient One in the light from his amulet to give him strength because the process of trying to get this information from the Ancient One's brain is going to be a strain on the Ancient One. But that also then powers the Ancient One's sort of uh, reflexive defenses to what. Strange is trying to do. So we've got a lot of back and forth where Strange is trying to probe the Ancient One's brain. The Ancient One has these sort of autonomic responses to try to defend himself. I would like it, as you've often pointed out, it would be good if Doctor Strange would have some sort of clever way of getting himself out of these various mind traps that the Ancient One is pushing back on him. But unfortunately, it's usually just, I have to have enough willpower to overcome the, yeah, what's being sent to me, which I find a little disappointing.
0: I'm going to go ahead and endorse this issue. I think the sort of traps that Ancient One is bringing on him and the ways that he is circumventing them, I mean, we should say this is one of the weirdest issues in a very weird book. You've got essentially an entire issue of just someone sitting on the edge of a bed, shining a light on the forehead of the person in the bed who is then shining a light back on his forehead. And that is it. You've got, you've got battle of the forehead lights for like eight pages. And it should not work as a comic. That sounds like the most dreadful comic I could possibly describe. And it totally works for me. It is totally awesome. And the ways in which they are gaming and counter-gaming each other, I love. I think it works beautifully.
1: Okay. I just wish that each of the different mind traps he was able to find some way around it, other than just, oh, I've gotta think about it and and want it real hard, and then okay, I'm done with that one now. Oh now there's another one. But he tries magic, he tries telepathy, which apparently is something different from magic. The ancient one then this time has this green sort of cage type thing that projects out of the Ancient One's forehead and it looks really cool. <laughs> it looks awesome. This particular mind trap causes hallucinations and so on uh, panel three on page six we get the ultimate apotheosis of Ditko fingers <laughs> as yes. Doctor Strange is hallucinating his fingers snaking out into odd snaky shapes.
0: His his toes are also curling up and his knee is, yes. to- is curling up and it's a, it's a beautiful drawing.
1: Apparently this works. The Ancient One then, while still being in a coma, is now having a telepathic exchange with Doctor Strange. He gives some information about eternity, gives him some sort of spell that will enable him to get the secrets of eternity. And at that point, the disciple comes back in and Doctor Strange is collapsed face down on the floor. We're, I think, momentarily supposed to think, oh, he might be dead. However, he's not dead. He's just completely exhausted from the mental strain of what he's just done. Tico
0: yeah. does a good job with mopey people in general, but uh he does a good job with just people who are just dead physical tired as well, which he does a great job on throughout this page. We should say the servant totally deserves a name. The servant has been a major character now yes. for about eight issues. And uh give the dude a name. He's been he's been a good faithful servant. If that's the least you could do for him, you know, if you if you yes. don't have a
1: pension plan. The last three panels Panels on page nine are all just beautiful, with the atmospheric, dark, moody Ditko goodness, with flowing capes and billowing black clouds, and everything. It's uh, uh, just really beautiful stuff. So. Doctor Strange speaks the incantation that the Ancient One has given him. I think that Lee does a pretty good job here as he uh, says, "...then does Doctor Strange recite one of the most potent spells of all time, in words so secret, phrases so soul-shattering, that we dare not reveal them here to your mortal gaze." But finally, when it is concluded, you know, give Stan credit that even if all he's doing here is providing the words, he's giving a really melodramatic flair to this, which is bringing something to the table. Oh, yeah, it's beautifully written. So then having spoken the spell, uh, his amulet once again comes off of his neck and this time grows to the size of a door. The amulet then opens where the eye would usually come out. And... Doctor Strange walks through the opening just at that moment. Mordo shows up and he's like, Oh, I missed him again. But he's going to continue on. So we finally made some progress in what we're doing with the search for eternity. And indeed, the last page here promises that next issue, Doctor Strange finds eternity. So big stuff coming up next issue.
0: Yes, I think this is just an absolutely wonderful issue. I think that it's so clever to have him enter into his own amulet of Akamato. It's a great version of, like, clicking the ruby slippers, and you could have gone home at any time. Like, you've had the portal on you this whole time. It's a great twist, and it is wonderful imagery of him stepping into the amulet. All right. All right. Well, you were pretty lucky that you got to do Strange Tales. I am not as lucky. I am doing Tales of Suspense featuring Iron Man and Captain America. It's got the titles of both books on the cover, but it's only got a picture of the Captain America story. Before we get to that Captain America story, we've got Iron Man fight on for a world is watching Iron Man versus Titanium Man. What more need we say? Written by Stanley, penciled by Dan Heck, inked by Mickey DeMeo, as opposed to the last issue, which was inked by Inscotta. And I really like DeMeo's inking over Heck in this issue. Have we seen this yet? Have we seen DeMeo inking Heck yet? I don't think so. It is a nice combo. I talked a lot about when we were discussing the books of September 1965, how it was just perversely terrible, the combinations of the inkers and the pencilers. This issue, it is much better. And Jameo inking Heck is an excellent idea. I think that he is really softening him and really making him look better. And nothing drives that home more so than... Apparently, they were in such a rush to get this issue out that they go ahead and just photocopy panels from last issue when they do the recap of last issue. And they sort of apologize for that. They say, if the panels on this page look somewhat familiar, it's because Sneaky Stan borrowed them from our last dish in order to accurately bring you up to date. But I think one of the reasons they had to apologize for it is because they're putting Coletta-inked panels next to these DeMeo inked panels. And the (laughs) contrast could not be more extreme. So we have Iron Man is still fighting Titanium Man in this sort of internationally televised boxing match type thing in a landmine field. Meanwhile, this Contessa, or this Countess, who has a crush on Tony Stark, she decides she is not happy that Tony Stark is not there paying attention to her, so she's going to break into his office and steal a little doodad. It must be some silly new transistor device he's been working on. Steals it from his desk just to sort of get her revenge on Tony Stark, which is a rather bizarre thing to do.
1: Let me just point out, it says, Meanwhile, at Tony Stark's hotel lab, and then she comes in, Tony, are you here? I was passing by and saw that your door was open. So not only does he have a, la- a mobile lab that he has set up in his hotel room, but he doesn't bother to even lock the door. Right. Uh, even close the door. <laughs> it's like, come on, Tony. I mean, just put some effort into this here.
0: Yeah, it hadn't occurred to me how poorly plotted this is. We're there in a different country. So how on earth can yes. she go to his lab while this whole thing is going on? I hadn't even realized how silly that was. So then <laughs> Iron Man and Titanium Man are still fighting against each other. Of course, cinderbird is booing its Iron Man from the sides, as he always is. Apparently, this is really like a boxing match because they actually have – ding, ding, the warning siren. The round is over at last, and they both go back to their corners, and Iron Man's like, okay, dude, I need that doodad that I left on my desk here, in my hotel room lab and the only way I'm going to win this is if I go get that doodad and he goes there and it's like oh it's gone and Stephanie left her handkerchief I guess her name is Countess Stephanie it was she who took it the little fool she's playing game to bring Tony Stark to her so you would think at this point he would fly off and find her and get the doodad back but no instead he flies over to where Happy Hogan is and says Happy you go find the countess now you would think someone who can fly would do a much better job searching a general area looking for someone than someone who cannot fly But instead, he says, You do it. Happy Hogan has to then run, go get a car. Just hope that he's going to run into the countess. He has absolutely no idea where she would be. Well, uh, no, no,
1: no. He 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 threatens somebody to give him information on where she is. This is your last chance, chum. You must have seen which direction she gro- drove off in. Now talk. So I mean, he's he's gathering information by threatening. I her see.
0: Forms. But so then he drives down a twisty mountain highway to find her, cuts her off, grabs her, brings her back. It's then like, okay, well, time to go sing back to Iron Man again. If Iron Man had. Search for her himself and gotten the doodad back himself he would have it when he needed it instead iron man has gone back into the fight without it by the time happy makes it back with the countess this whole thing makes no sense
1: my reading of this was that iron man needed to be back in for the beginning of round two and wasn't going to have the time so it's like i got to go back and actually be physically there or else i'll you know communism will win or whatever. So, Happy, you got to go do this for me while I go and tag in here and then you can go ahead and get me the device when when it comes up. That's how I read it.
0: Okay. Sure. <laughs> Happy goes back to where Iron Man is now fighting Titanium Man and decides to run out onto the field to give the doodad to Iron Man and gets attacked by I guess this is this supposed to be some some sort of explosive device that Titanium Man is shooting that ricochets into Happy. And so Happy seemingly dies. Pepper sees this, and she faints dead away herself in grief at seeing uh, this happen to Happy. Happy even does the ultimate character dying in one of these comics. He reveals that he knows that Iron Man is Tony Stark and Iron Man is clearly like happy as dead now. And he says he he called me boss. He knew and he still helped me, even though I've always stood between him and Pepper. But now I've got to make sure he didn't sacrifice his life in vain. So he seems to have double-checked that Happy is dead. He attaches the dude dead, and then he goes off to fight Titanium Man. And then, I don't want to shock you, but this is, I think, the sixth Marvel book this month that ends on a cliffhanger. Spider-Man and Fantastic Four did end on the cliffhangers, but a lot of other books have. This is another book, like the Journey into Mystery Thor story, where it started on page one with Thor fighting Absorbing Man and ended on page 12 with Thor fighting Absorbing Man, and nothing much had changed. Well, here, we start on page one with Iron Man fighting Titanium Man on this battlefield, and we end on page 12, and he's still fighting Titanium Man on this battlefield. The only big plot of him we've had in the meantime is that Happy died. But the problem is, Happy's not dead. So uh, the only development we had in this issue is going to be undone in the next issue, even though Iron Man seems pretty sure that Happy is dead. And it seems like they would have to kill him off now because he knows the secret identity. But... They are going to undo all this next issue. So it will turn out that this issue had no plot development whatsoever. It's a perfectly fine issue. It's okay. It's a space filler. It's false drama, but it's fine. I like Denea's inking on heck. I think the art is shockingly good.
1: Happy gives his like, you know, win just one for the Gipper speech <laughs> as, yeah. he's, as he's supposedly dying there. Tony's like, oh, he knew that I was Tony Stark. Like, yeah, dude we all know i mean it's you know, again you do not really bother with this whole thing very well i mean oh, it was a fun issue sure I'll, I'll leave it at that okay the hotel lab thing does bug me <laughs> yes but it was a fun issue yes
0: the hotel lab thing is churches okay let's go ahead and go back to the back of the book captain america if this be treason so story by stan lee layoff by jack kirby lettering by s rosen and Reintroducing the matchless artistry of one of the giants of the great golden age of comics, art by George Tuska. So we have George Tuska back. Now, bizarrely, Stan has had to dip back into the Golden Age about 15 times so far. Not really developing new talent, Stan. <laughs> You're not really, a, you just keep going back to your old Rolodex. It's time to start developing some new talent. Of course, soon we're going to have Jim Stranko show up, who is a massive new talent that Marvel will be developing. But Stan, once again, returned to the old Rolodex. George Tuska, I do not think will be a great addition to the Marvel Universe. He will stick around for about 10 years. He will be doing art on art books he will become the major artist on Iron Man eventually, but he's gonna do Cap America here for the next five or so issues and it is okay. It looks better than when Ares uh, was expected to finish Kirby's Layout's last issue. It looks perfectly okay. It's kind of ugly arch. I think this first page is the best and worst of it. It said, last issue, we showed you how Cap took control of a Nazi plane, but we didn't show you the actual takeover scenes. But now we correct that grievous oversight in the Titanic tableau that follows. And we see Cap swinging through, kicking a Nazi. And it's a nice dynamic page, but Cap looks ugly. And the Nazi looks ugly
1: and George Tuska's faces are always ugly. That's going to be a problem. I was a little surprised by how much I wasn't impressed by the art in here because I thought I remembered really liking some of the George Tuska finishes, but that must be on a future issue. So then Camp
0: takes over the plane, is rushing back from France to England to save – Bucky, who is a prisoner at Greymore Castle. We still have the turncoat British scientist with the mechanical hand who is being begged by his sister not to help the Nazis, but he is still continuing to do it. We got, I think, a pretty nice sequence of Cap getting hit by anti-aircraft fire, presumably. okay, this is weird. He's flying a Nazi plane to England and he's getting hit by anti-aircraft fire. You would think this would be English anti-aircraft fire. But no, this is actually Nazi anti-aircraft fire.
1: No, it says, and then suddenly British night fighters attacking me. No time to explain, I've got to outmaneuver them. Oh, okay. But then he ends up flying a bomber as though it were a fighter. (laughs) Okay, so first of all, Cap apparently he is a very good military pilot, okay? sure and then it says with the skill and daring which have made his name a household word throughout the world captain america hedge hops skims over rooftops between barrage balloons under bridges until at last so he's flying a bomber a bomber under bridges
0: (laughs) you say it and it sounds silly but i think that Kirby and Tuska really pull it off. I think it's a really nice panel of flying the bomber under a bridge on page
1: four. Uh, yeah, just uh, the, the, scale, the scale wouldn't possibly work. <laughs> OK, never mind. Go on.
0: I think it's a nice sequence. Yes, I guess he is dealing with British anti aircraft and British night fighters flying at him. And he has to land Cap's face on page five. Tuska has to draw a Cap's face three times and it just looks awful all three times. Tuska is terrible with faces. But Camp gets into the castle, tries to rescue Bucky. A bunch of Nazis wearing suits of armor attack him. I always like it when our heroes get to fight people in suits of armor, waving maces and halberds and various things. You always get ridiculous panels in Captain America when people are shooting at him and he is blocking it with his shield, but he's like blocking it way above his head. And it's like, you didn't have to block that dude. You could have just not done anything. And their shots would have gone way above your head unless they're (laughs) intentionally shooting at your shield. Meanwhile, of course, uh, Cap has left his entire platoon to get decimated back in Europe. We briefly cut back to there because he failed to read the entire memo that uh, he could have read when he could have warned them. But meanwhile, the Nazis are going to put Cap and the scientist sister on a missile headed straight for 10 Downing Street, where Churchill lives, prepared to fire rocket. And I don't want to shock you. We have another book that ends on a cliffhanger. That is it for this issue. At least this issue feels like it has more plot development than some of the other cliffhangers we have that ended up exactly where they started this feels like it is a consequential issue unfortunately the tusk art is not very good but the issue is fine enough it's an okay issue and ultimately the art is better this issue than it was last issue
1: yes that's not saying that much and as i said i i think that this combo gets better in future issues this is okay we've had better captain america stories and we will have better captain america stories in the future but we will also have a lot that are more like this
0: I certainly miss Frank Ray. I wish they had just had Frank Ray stay on the book, uh, aka Frank Giacoya, and take over over Kirby's layouts. I think that would have been a beautiful book, but we didn't get it. We've got Peskin said.
1: Yes. All right. So let's move on to Tales to Astonish, number 72. It's mainly a uh, Submariner cover. It says, A Prince There Was. But then it's also got a little inset of the Hulk's head with Rick Jones. No, I guess it's actually the banner inside the head. It says, Within the Monster Dwells a Man. We pick up where... The previous story of Prince Namor left off with him fighting the Seaweed Man, written in majesty by Stan Lee, drawn in grandeur by Adam Austin, who is, of course, Gene Colon, inked in splendor by Vince Coletta, lettered in the suburbs by S. Rosen. Namor is still battling the Seaweed Man. I will once again say, for as much as I'm going to be ragging on a lot of Vince Coletta's inking, this splash page doesn't look bad. I mean, I'm sure it would look better handled by a better anchor, but okay. This, he's, I think, took a, at least a little time on this, but in the next few pages, we're just going to get some stuff where clearly he just erased a lot of stuff for instance on page two where he swims around and around and around essentially pulls a superman the whole thing where you know you fly around in a circle fast enough to go ahead and create a tornado or in this case a whirlpool so he does that and on that panel it just looks like well that panel and the panel right before it panels three and four both of them just look like where are the lines like where do they go? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Not high quality stuff. So, once Namor gets the seaweed man to move, he finds an old rusty door <laughs> with the trident mark on it underneath. So then he pulls that open and sees a fish with a diamond in its mouth. So, Namor is just like, "Oh, okay, the next clue has to do with the Diamonds of Doom." Which okay, Diamonds of Doom, sure. Yeah, we'll we'll go with that. Why not? He heads off for that. We then see that Dorma is lamenting the fact that she betrayed Namor and that now she is a prisoner to Krang.
0: I do like that panel, the bottom panel on page four where Dorma is moping. That looks more like Colin than Coletta. There is some real Colin coming through in that panel. It looks like the figure is actually somewhat live. And, of course, Colin loves drawing live people. And Coletta does not like inking live people. But uh, the liveness is coming through on this one. I feel like... I've never said the word live out loud in my life before, and it sounds really weird coming out of my mouth.
1: But, uh... I was fine with live. Liveness, I'm not entirely sure about. That's, that's making me feel a little icky. And yes, that is a good looking panel. But you will notice that those curvy lines right above her head that are indicating some of the roundness on that panel on the ceiling. Uh, again, one of the things I was being taught when I was first trying to learn to ink comics is don't use lines that are so thin that they won't reproduce well. Right? Yeah. Like there, there's a there's a thinness beyond which you don't want to go because then you'll get stuff that looks exactly like what's above <laughs> Dorma's head here. Yeah. So Krang is upset that Namor is making progress in his quest, but then he decides to distract himself from this by attempting to get Dorma once again, to join him in ruling the world. Page six, I think I've mentioned before that uh, as I've been going back and revisiting Colin's work in my middle age here, there's some stuff that's been kind of bothering me about him that I never really was bothered by before. And one of them... It has to do with it looking like he wasn't really planning out his panels beforehand. It's almost like he just went straight to the page and started drawing rather than doing any sort of thumbnail to figure out where things are. And so on page six, there's no real reason for that first panel to go down and intrude in the fourth panel there. He could just as easily have just had that panel end at the same height as the other one, and we're going to be seeing more and more of this, and sometimes even those uh, panel lines are going to be sort of diagonal. and. I'm perfectly fine with that if you if you, as a storyteller are using that as a storytelling element. But in this case, it doesn't really feel like that. It feels more like there's no rhyme or reason to it. That is showing up a little bit more now, and that will continue to bother me, unfortunately, a little bit with Colin's artwork, uh, which is a shame because I've always loved Colin's artwork, and I'm a little annoyed that this annoyance has started coming up on me. So Dorma turns down Krang's offer of love and power, and so krang gases her but apparently it's not any kind of sleep gas or nerve gas or anything else it is something that creates a plastic cage which i imagine having a little trademark symbol next to it uh yes (laughs) the vapors of gas were not deadly but you have imprisoned me
0: within a plastic cage uh so of course we are underwater presumably Um, these people cannot breathe there so we have vapors we have gas um, underwater. It's, and, um, it, uh, that's right. Does she refer to it as gas?
1: Wait a minute. Did she does. actually use the it term gas?
0: The vapors of gas were not deadly, but you have imprisoned me within a plastic cage. <sighs> so yes. The vapors of gas underwater.
1: Yeah. Um, uh, once again, underwater, time travel, all of it is just like going to a different planet. That's, that's, that's how it is. Um, So, oh, by the way, speaking of trademarks, uh, I just got word today that my trademark for Nerdbox has been granted by the Federal Patent Trademark Office or whatever it is. So. congratulations. Yeah, so Nerdbox is now. My trademark. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so Krang then, once Dorma is trapped in the plastic cage, drops her down through a trap door, and uh, she is brought before the people as an example of what happens if you disobey Krang. So they're like, Dorma, the noble woman whom the people love, this is what has become of her because she didn't fall in line with Krang. This is what will happen to you. And then she is condemned to go be with the Faceless Ones. We don't know what this is, but she is clearly really not happy with uh with the fact she's about to be sent to the Faceless Ones. Uh, she is first delivered to some... Uh, some dude named Xantor the Merciless, who is wearing some big safety goggles of some sort. He then turns on some kind of a light, which somehow is going to transport her to the faceless ones. It's not really clear what's going on. I will also point out that here on the top of page 10, once again, there are a lot of lines that didn't make it into the final issue here. I mean, look at that circular panel where he's turning the dial. Yeah. Yeah. there clearly had to have been way more stuff there, right? (laughs) And then probably in the next panel, you know, the, the big panel it's inset into as well, even though that one does have a bright light. So it might be that that was largely not there, but I think that probably less is there than Colin originally indicated. So I don't know why the light needed to come in order to banish her to the faceless ones, but somehow it does. She ends up down at the bottom of the sea, and here come the faceless ones, and we will find out more about them next issue. Yes. Namor can basically sense that something is going bad. He says, A chill feeling of dread seems to hover near my heart as though terrible danger has befallen one who must be saved. And then he asks some of the fish, because he can ask fish what they've seen. We've already established this. And Stan refers to this. He says, Namor obtains a mental message from a passing school of fish piscatorial news gatherers of the undersea world which so I'm like okay that's, no. good. <laughs> that's, that, that's fun so Namor now knows what's going on but is like I can't be distracted from my quest I'll have to hope that she's alright and we'll worry about her later I've now reached the diamonds of doom and then there is a kaleidoscopic brilliance of light as he approaches the diamonds of doom we then finally see the diamonds of doom on page 12 and they look terrible um, <laughs> they that, that looks like maybe a pile of balled-up sheets of paper, maybe? Yeah, it's really not great. And so, apparently, the light of these diamonds saps your strength. How? Why? I'm not sure. Does this have anything to do with the bright light that Xantor just shined in order to send Dorma to the Faceless Ones? I don't know. That didn't seem to really have anything to do with anything. So maybe. Anyway, one way or the other, even though we've got Gene Colan and Stan Lee here, I'm just not drawn in by the story. No, it's just uh, it's a shame. Any other thoughts about that before I do the Incredible Hulk?
0: This was, I agree, a pretty lame story. could a better anchor have saved it. Who knows? But probably not. There's probably just not a lot here coming from anybody coming from Colin as either co-potter or Penciler. Coming from Leah as scripture, you can't say they're doing such a great job. They're being let down by Coletta. <laughs> Looking at my notes, I say krang gases dorma. I mean, I guess there are underwater clouds of particulate, but it actually says the <laughs> vapors of gas. So <laughs> it, we know yeah. this isn't a, We know this isn't just a, a bunch of underwater spray. I say in my notes quest not exciting dorma krang stuff is better, but gas question mark question mark. If only Kirby or. <laughs> if only Kirby or Wood was doing this series. One of the many great tragedies of the Universe is that Wood did Daredevil instead of Summer.
1: Yes, if he had done some Mariner, who knows? That may have gone on to be a, uh, a long and fruitful relationship between Wood and Marvel. But, you know, we'll never know. So, all right. Within the monster dwells a man. Last we saw, the Hulk was holed up in his secret lab. It is no longer a secret, and the army is bombarding it. A projecto image of the leader has shown up to say, hey... Let me transfer you to me and you can become my ally or you can sit here and be crushed under the rubble by the army destroying your lab. It says thrills as only Stan Lee's story can provide them. Power as only Jack Kirby's layouts can create it. Drama as only Mickey DeMeo's artwork can present it. Sound effects as only Sam Rosen's point can letter them. So again, okay. Sam Rosen getting some respect here. So, again, um, and Makita
0: Mayo is, again, Mike Esposito, who uh, yes. I feel like does a slightly better job on the art. I feel like, you know, now he's come to realize this is my life now. I'm going to have to be working over Kirby <laughs> And he's doing a slightly better job with it, but still not great.
1: Yeah, I strongly dislike what he does with the Hulk's brow. Yeah. It, it, there's something weird about the way his brow works, but in terms of his finished art not being quite as bad, this issue, I present you the counter argument of page two, panel one.
0: Yeah, that's a pretty bad panel. <laughs> that's that's, <laughs> that's bad. Uh...
1: Yeah, that's pretty (laughs) bad, right? Ross and Talbot, meanwhile, are outside getting word of what's going on and giving some orders. Rick Jones is somehow still there, just like, hey, three-star general and major, I'm just a teenage kid who has been in lots of trouble with the American government, and I'm just going to sit here and tell you what you should do. It's like, why hasn't this kid been thrown in the brig or something? Or just shot. (laughs) You know, Talbot, you are terrible at your job so the army is launching conventional missiles at this small mountain where the lab is now wasn't his lab actually under a lake or a swamp yeah,
0: it was once upon yeah. a time wasn't it
1: Uh, yes it was you know maybe that's the one that you were saying you thought they had already found and he moved it somewhere else i don't know anyway once again panel three on page three also just looks pretty darn bad
0: i gotta say it is totally believable that he would have more than one cave it's not like this makes no sense they already found his cave like no if i were bruce banner i'd go ahead and build myself multiples of these things
1: Yes. So uh, Hulk finally takes the leader up on his offer and the leader transforms the Hulk into electrowaves. The scientific principle involved in what you are seeing is too complicated to explain in detail on these pages. But essentially, the way this works is very much like uh, Star Trek transporters. Essentially, your body is disassembled into individual information, basically waves that are then broadcast somewhere else and then reformed into your body. And once again, page four, panel one, Hulk looks terrible. So he arrives after transporting. The leader's like, hmm, you seem smarter than you were before. And he's like, oh, wait, I can't let him figure out that I'm still Bruce Banner in here. It seems that the leader is creating a more warlike version of the humanoids the warrior humanoids that he's got like a big pot that he's growing eggs in and it looks like there's a mixer that's mixing them around and then they they come out of their eggs and immediately start punching each other in the face
0: have all humanoids always been hatched from eggs it's a very weird thing but kirby has always well i guess dicko invented the humanoids and had a lot of fun with them and now kirby has taken the baton happily from dicko and is also having fun with the humanoids
1: Yes. The leader explains that he's actually been gassing the Hulk the whole time with some kind of gas that the leader himself is immune to. So Hulk finally succumbs to this without realizing it was going on before it's too late. The army is now looking through the rubble of the under mountain lab, and they can't find any evidence of either... Banner or Hulk. They are starting to think that both of them must have been killed, but they're like, oh, but there's no body. I'm not sure. Then um, Talbot is like, hey, both the Hulk and Banner were connected with Rick Jones. I wonder, can the Hulk be a product of one of Banner's secret experiments? By thunder. So I never nice. thought of that, Talbot. It's like you guys are thick. I mean you're just oh and now they finally go off and actually take Rick Jones into custody. Like what took you so long? So apparently uh the leader has set up shop in Rome, which okay, yeah, sure. If you can do that, why not? Rome's Rome's yeah. nice.
0: I find that just an entirely jarring panel where suddenly, I mean, I certainly certainly assumed that we were in one of his Mesa hideouts somewhere in the southwest or something. But no, then we see him looking out of his little palazzo on a piazza in Rome. It's very jarring uh, that that is where this is based. But I like it. I think that's a fun place to set this story.
1: And it's supposedly literally right above a museum (laughs) or at least what what is supposed to look like a museum. Uh, And they say on the outskirts of Rome, that's not the outskirts of Rome. The outskirts of Rome look much more modern. That is definitely somewhere in not the ancient city, but definitely the Renaissance city of Rome. We have these weird, scaly-looking, giant, club-carrying statues that are there. And when I first saw these, I'm like, are these like some kind of humanoid? Indeed, they turn out to be later. The sleep gas that the leader gave the Hulk wakes him up, but he's starting to change back to Bruce Banner. Now, last time he had changed into the Hulk, he had just had a bullet lodged in Banner's brain. And the only thing that's keeping him alive is the fact that he's the Hulk. So if he changes back to Banner, he's afraid that this bullet in his brain will immediately kill him. So he is trying through willpower to go ahead and stay the Hulk. And then as he's tearing apart the lab in frustration, he accidentally hits some sort of switch. We'll find out something more about that later. The leader, meanwhile, is developing amphibious humanoids because he's already planning on taking over Atlantis after he gets done with the surface world. It's like, slow your roll, buddy. (laughs) Do you you eat this elephant one bite at a time? (laughs) This is not something you need to be jumping onto just yet. But then he becomes aware that the Hulk is on a rampage and that he's now broken into the statue gallery. So then, yes, it turns out that these green scaly things with clubs are indeed some other flavor of humanoids that are fighting the Hulk, and we leave it off in the middle of that fight. So any more thoughts on that from you?
0: So yet another cliffhanger this month, this time, but this is another case where the story has massively developed. We have gotten the Hulk from America to Rome. We have had all sorts of escalations in the story. You know, yes, you're making a strong case that there are lots of ugly panels in this issue, but I think that... I, the art is largely working for me with Kirby layouts and DeMeo, a.k.a. Esposito finishes. I like the story. I always like the leader. I thought this was a shockingly good issue of Hulk. Okay. It has its arguments. I like humanoids, and we get more sheer variety of humanoids in this issue than we've ever had before.
1: We do. Okay. So, are we moving on to the Avengers? One thing I'll say about this issue of The Avengers, we introduce the character Power Man. Now, this is not Luke Cage, who would later be called Power Man. This is a villain. His design has always been a little weird. It's very Earth tone.
0: Yeah, I hate it. I hate Power Man's costume. I always have. Eventually, it will get abandoned. So this is Eric Justin. He will be Power Man for a while. Then he will actually, once Luke Cage Power Man comes along, he will show up to fight Luke H. Power Man over the name and lose the fight and agree not to be Power Man anymore. He will then become Goliath and start growing. And then he will join the Thunderbolts and he will be part of the Thunderbolts when the Masters V will try to pretend to be heroes. And he, like everybody else in the Thunderbolts, will become the best written he has ever been when Kurt Busiek is writing that book. And Eric Jostin will finally make good in those issues but he will be a pretty lame villain until he makes it to the thunderbolts where he gets redeemed
1: Um, and we we have another marvel no prize book incident here on this that's what i was about to say
0: i was about to say that this cover makes it into the marvel no prize book and i was going to ask you if you could spot
1: why (laughs) yes no i definitely remember this one from that captain america has an a on his chest where a star should be (laughs)
0: And on his forehead, he has Captain America has an A yes. on his forehead, and on his chest. So uh, that made it into the Marvel No Price book. It is amazing. It made it past the editing process, but as we discovered, there was no the editing process. <laughs> that, uh, Marvel <laughs> just had no editor at this point, which was a big problem. So once again, we have Bollywood inking. Don Heck, they do not brag about it on the cover in this issue like they did in last issue. I think they've realized that what in heck is not actually a good combo, but they are just grimly soldiering along with it. Once again, second issue that's dealt with the crazy dial-filled walls of a vendor's headquarters, Hawkeye is changing a fuse on the well, I guess it's supposed to be some sort of massive supercomputer or something in the Avengers.
1: I guess so. Hide so out. this is one thing. This is one thing I never thought of when I was a kid, but now looking at this, I am. This is supposed to be Tony Stark's townhouse, like his luxury yes. mansion in Midtown Manhattan, and yet it's just filled wall to wall with equipment. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> Which, yeah, I don't know. Seems a little weird.
0: So then Captain America comes up. He starts hassling Hawkeye. Hawkeye starts hassling him. They start getting a big fight. Quicksilver comes and breaks it up. Hawkeye is still grumbling. So Scarlet Witch shoots Hawkeye with a hex bolt to uh, send him flying. Captain America is criticizing Wanda for that. Wanda thinks his touch so strong and yet so gentle. So Wanda is definitely into Captain America. Meanwhile, <laughs> we cut to Eric Josted, who was one of Zemo's mercenaries down in the Amazon. And... Got really lost for a while because he's only now stumbled back to Zemo's headquarters and finds everybody gone and realizes that Zemo is long dead. Died back in issue 16, five issues ago. But then he's like, hey, here's the equipment where Zemo and the Enchantress and Executioner created Wonder Man. Gee, why didn't they ever reuse that? And then the Enchanter shows up. She's like, I don't know why they never reuse that. Let's go and use it on you. Let's go ahead and use the same device that turned Simon Williams into Wonder Man and use it to turn you into Power Man. Now, of course, the reason they didn't reuse it is because it kills you. The whole idea of that device was that that device was going to slowly kill Wonder Man. And there is no mention of that in this issue, that this is a device that kills you. Instead, it works I guess Zemo fixed it eventually, or maybe the Enchantress fixes it here. She turns him into Power Man, gives him a very silly looking costume. Now, at this point, he's got a lot of power. She's got a lot of power. They could just attack the Avengers. And who boy do I wish they had just attacked the Avengers. Instead, they come up with the world's most bizarre plan. I could easily spend an hour trying to explain the plot of this issue because it is Extremely complexly plotted. They arrange a series of incidents to make the Avengers look bad. First, they attack downtown with a giant horn headed monster, and the Avengers go to fight it, but they realize that everything they attack it with goes right through it, and no one else can see the monster, and it just looks like they're demolishing a city block, so they get in trouble with the police who yell at them, and we see. The Enchantress and Power Man sort of chuckling over this. Then Quicksilver intercepts a radio call saying someone is tampering with subway tracks. Goes down into the subway to stop them. Finds some all torn up. Power Man comes out. I guess Quicksilver doesn't see him. Power Man knocks out Quicksilver leaves him on the tracks. The Avengers get there and they realize they're going to have to blow up a train to save Quicksilver. They... Stanley, he seems to have quickly inserted a bunch of dialogue explaining why this didn't
1: hurt anybody when they blew up this right. subway train. I will, I will say that panel right in the middle of page 11, it, generally Wood isn't doing that much for Heck. There is a few other exceptions I'll mention later, but this panel is one that Wood was able to really pull it out.
0: Yeah, you're right. That's a nice panel. on blowing up the subway train. We then see Enchantress and Power Man sort of chortling over this, and we see the Avengers sort of moping over the fact these two incidents have happened. Then we get a truly bizarre thing where, again, the story being told by the art is completely different from the story that Lee is telling us in the words, where Power Man seemingly is attacking some security guards who have some papers on them then captain america is like oh i'll go rescue those security guards from power man and i guess this is the first time any of them have actually seen power man power man knocks him out but then they reveal that because when power man attacks the guards he's like those disguises can't fool power man it's like wait what is this disguises what are they even talking yeah. about later they're like oh those thieves disguised as uniform guards would have stolen her vital papers if you hadn't stopped them you're a hero young man the fact that these people were thieves disguised as guards is not in the art at all. That is not right. a story that Don Heck is telling with his pencils. That is a story that Stanley is adding in the script that really makes no sense and isn't being conveyed visually in any way. It's quite bizarre. Once again, we see them moping about it back at the mansion. Once again, we see Enchantress and Power Man chortling about this. We then get another bizarre incident where Hawkeye is lured to a mansion and is fighting Power Man. We see Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch out on the town. God, it's taken me forever to summarize this issue. This is all so many people being moved around the board in so many different ways. Just so many one panel scenes that are gumming up this issue. They get in a big old fight and then somehow they all just end up back at the mansion feeling glum again. Somehow this whole thing has gone down in a way that embarrasses them again. And the city council decides to... Then it's universally agreed we'll declare the vendors a public menace and issue a court order forcing them to disband. And you get the vendors sitting around looking glummer than ever, deciding to disband because they've been ordered to disband. This is an atrociously potted issue by. We want to give Heck and Lee co-pawning credit. Just absolutely groaning under the weight of moving its characters from scene to scene in excruciatingly painful ways. Wood is adding a little bit to Heck's pencils but not enough. This is just an atrocious issue. I think this issue is just an absolute disaster. Power Man will be a character for the ages. He will stick around for many years in many guises. He is not the first character we have met who will be a pretty useless character until Ziac gets his hands on him and turns him into a good character in the pages of the Thunderbolts. But it will be a long time before we get there.
1: Yeah, generally, when I was first reading through this, I was thinking, wow, Wood just doesn't seem to be really putting anything into this. Like He's clearly just like, I just got to get this thing done and get paid. But then as I went on, I was noticing that lots of the medium size faces that are either straight on or three-quarters view actually look quite a bit like Wood, although it didn't seem to really make much difference on any of the profiles for some reason. But anytime you see someone's head more or less face on that looks pretty much like oh yeah that's a wood face i, I kind of like that but that's about it like you know you would think that wood would just really be able to punch up that whole scene that was well either of the scenes that had the big control panels on them i mean wood is fantastic at just having big panels of dials and handles and Knobs and you know all that sort of stuff. All
0: the science fiction stories he did back in the EC days, he so
1: did a lot Ex- of those. exactly. And yet, like p- page two, panel one just looks like uh i don't care (laughs) it just doesn't look like he he really cared much at all so yeah some of the faces he lent some goodness to but that's about it you're right bizarre plot i don't like power man's look in general so second panel on the last page what is the perspective on that panel (laughs) (laughs) don't ask (laughs) uh, don't tell i mean is that supposed to be like diamond windows like are those supposed to be uh, yes i'm
0: going to hope those are diamond shaped windows but you're right i don't think they are supposed (laughs) to be diamond shaped windows i think we are just getting a truly bizarre angle looking down out of this window at Scarlet Witch being arrested as Enchantress is looking down at her. I think this is a truly bizarre angle that makes no sense.
1: Uh, I also uh, like on page 19, when Power Man finds a water main and pulls it loose to squirt Quicksilver, the sound effect, splat, just has water dripping off of it (laughs) everywhere, which is nice. But yeah, it's... uh... This is just so disappointing. Although Pietro and Wanda did get to see Hello, Dolly with the original Carol Channing cast. So, uh, you know, good for them. Good for them. Uh, oh, OK. Yes. OK. You know what? I go back. Page 16, panel four. Yes, those are diamond-shaped windows.
0: OK. <laughs> I guess that helps a
1: little bit. I was just click, much. He was clicking back to go see if he had established that at any point earlier. Uh, and he did. But I mean, come on, storytelling. You got to give me more continuity than that if you're going to pull something like that. Uh, yeah. Uh, anyway, yeah, this is another issue.
0: Yes. And there's a letter from Mike Friedrich, who will soon be a writer at Marvel Comics, but ah. uh, is still a letter writer at this point. OK, okay so that was October 1965, we have had a problem for a while where the second half of the month is nowhere near as good as the first half of the month, of course, because Daredevil was the bi-monthly book this month, that meant that Strange Tales got bumped back to this episode, and Strange Tales is possibly Marvel's best book. So we got to discuss Strange Tales this episode and three other books that weren't anywhere near as good.
1: Yep. All right. Well, we've been at this way too long. I need to... Uh, wow, it's 1.20 a.m. my time. Uh, I need to go to bed. So yes. <laughs> we started later than usual today and I thought that I'd done some stuff that was going to make me go faster and I absolutely did not. So that'll just be a problem and it's your problem because you're editing it
0: all right it's my problem i'll deal with it (laughs) thanks everybody for listening so we our next episode is going to be a special annuals episode where we will be looking at spider-man annual number two journey into mystery annual number one and fantastic Four annual number three and we will hopefully have a special guest to do it so we look forward to seeing you
1: then yeah we look forward to joining you at that time thanks a lot everybody stay safe take care
0: all right thanks bye
1: Thanks for listening to Marble Reread Club. Please subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Your reviews and ratings are a great help and always appreciated. We love hearing from you. Go to MarbleRereadClub.com to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. We're also on Facebook and Instagram. See you next time.